Good morning. Welcome. It is Eric Erickson here. The Eric Erickson Show. The phone number. If you want to be a part of the program this morning, 877-97-ERIC. That's 877-973-7425. The president tweeting about civil war. There will be a civil war if he is removed. I I, I got to tell you. Now, in fairness to the president, he's just retweeting something that Robert Jeffries, the idiot pastor from Texas, said on Fox News. I don't think it's helpful to the president to be tweeting that there's going to be a civil war or or fake news. And the president seems to be circulating a bunch of conspiracy theories as well. We need to get to um, here. There are two problems right now shaping up with impeachment on the Republican side. Uh, there are also problems shaping up on the Democratic side we need to get to. On the Republican side, though, on 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 the, the, the side of, of righteousness, if you're a Republican, the president is unhelpfully stirring the pot, uh, trying to rile up his base in a way that is going to build a bipartisan coalition against him. As I have mentioned ad nauseum now, there are 18 Republicans leaving the House of Representatives at the end of uh, 20, what, 2021. They'll be out January 3rd, 2021. They're not running for re-election. There are 18 of them right now. Uh, They do not like the president. To some degree, they feel like they are being driven from Washington because of the president. And they understand that if the Democrats build momentum on this, they're going to need bipartisanship to give it credibility. And in bringing bipartisanship to it, the Republicans, they're already nursing a grudge against the president. Well, if they pass articles of impeachment in the House of Representatives, that then moves it to the United States Senate. And when moving to the United States Senate, the president already has four Republicans who are leaving. One of them, uh, the the senator from Wyoming, is it Inzi who's leaving? Um, he, he's okay with the president, but uh, we've got a Kansas seat that's opening, and, and Pat Roberts doesn't like the president. Johnny Isaacson in Georgia doesn't like the president. Lamar Alexander in Tennessee doesn't like the president. Uh, they, they may publicly be okay with the president, but privately they, they're not big fans of the president. And they could give bipartisan stature in the Senate to build momentum. You also now have Susan Collins in the Senate being very public uh, that the president's attacks on the whistleblower are inappropriate. Uh, so you, you've got a problem there. You've got a problem with Mitt Romney, who is in a Republican state that doesn't like the president. Uh, Democrats and third-party candidates did far better in Utah with uh, Donald Trump on the ballot in 2016 than they've ever done, Utah being the most Republican state in the country, and yet they don't like President Trump. You've got Pat Toomey in Pennsylvania. You've got Ben Sass in Nebraska. Sass is in an awkward situation in that he's on the ballot, but Sass views the Constitution very strongly. Um, you've got a number of these senators around the country. Who else? Uh, Richard Burr in North Carolina has expressed concerns. Uh, I'm missing one or two. In any event, um, you've got enough Republicans in the United States Senate. Even if you can't get to two-thirds, you pull it close and you severely weaken the president for re-election. But the president saying there's going to be a civil war if he is removed really just causes the collegiality among members of the Senate to go up because they want to show it's not true. And that's a problem for the president. It is also a problem for the president and his team that they do not have a prevailing narrative right now to try to defeat this. They're throwing conspiracy theories. The latest conspiracy theory being circulated by actually very good friends of mine um, on the on the right is that uh, the inspector general changed 
the reporting requirements for whistleblowers so that uh, you used to, and you probably heard, in fact, the president is tweeting this out this morning, as a matter of fact, uh, in the last minute or so, the president has tweeted this out, that up until August of this year, whistleblowers could only uh, file a whistleblower complaint, particularly in the intelligence community, with first-hand information. They weren't allowed to file a whistleblower complaint with second-hand information, and that the form was changed in August of 2019. It is true. The form was changed in 2019. It is not true, however, that prior to 2019, only first-hand accounts could be filed. That's not true at all. Uh, in fact, uh, prior to 2019, what happened was the form allowed secondhand complaints, but um, they you had you didn't have to specify who the secondhand complaints came from. Uh, let me read you the breakdown here. It is actually rather important. Uh, I just texted this to someone, and now I closed the screen. Let me pull up this complaint again. Yeah. Um, since at least 2017, Form 2014, Form 401, which has the whistleblower complaint, required that there be a distinguishing between direct and personal knowledge or uh, heard about it from others. The change came where on the old form, there were three options. Uh, you heard about it from secondhand sources outside of uh, your area or from other employees within your area. Now there are only two boxes. One is firsthand information. The other is secondhand information. Um, and the secondhand information is uh, then specified between other employees or um, people outside the agency. Uh, yeah, let me just read this to you so, so I'm not screwing this up. Uh, the kernel of fact towards this conspiracy theory is that there is a new Form 401 dated August 2019. A question on the form explicitly anticipates tips based on secondhand information and asks the whistleblower to check a box. I have direct and personal knowledge or I heard about it from others. What isn't mentioned is that there's a near identical form gracing Form 401 that's existed since at least May of 2018, making it impossible that it adds an easement for Trump's whistleblower, the major difference in the fields is that the old form included three options instead of two, subdividing secondhand sources into outside sources and other employees. So in other words, the new box has, I have direct knowledge or I heard it from others. The old box had, I have direct knowledge or I heard it from others, the others being people outside my agency or uh, other employees within my agency. The old box was a little more precise, the new box not, but both allowed secondhand knowledge. So the president tweeting this morning that the old uh, form did not allow secondhand knowledge is not true. One of the other issues is that uh, conservatives are essentially building in conspiracy theory. And, and this is this is the issue that should concern the president's team. In fact, there's a report out the president is upset with Mick Mulvaney for not having some sort of overarching narrative to deal with the situation. Uh, here's, here's the problem here. Right now, the prevailing narrative is conspiracy. And most Americans don't buy conspiracy. And it doesn't help when you're pushing conspiracies that are easily debunked, like, for example, this uh, form or the uh, the Ukrainian situation saying, what about Joe Biden? What about Joe Biden? We'll, we'll get to Joe Biden because that's where the Democrats have concerns. I, I want to deal with my own side first. Let me, if I can here, in fact, I put this up at theresurgent.com. You, you can go see it for yourself. Uh, let me pull it up so I can kind of read it. 
Um, it's always better the first time. And I, I think that what the president and his team needs is an actual overarching narrative. Now, a lot of the media is not going to buy this narrative because the, the media really is in the tank for the Democrats. The media really is out to get the president, and you do need to understand the media is out to get the president. And by the way, I think you can point out to the American people this is so because the American people distrust the media. The media has worse trust numbers than Congress has right now. So I do think the president has an avenue to tell people the media really is biased against him and not giving him fair statements. But let me outline for you, if I were the president's messaging team, let me give you the approach that I would take on this. First, I would make it very clear that there is more than one whistleblower. It is pretty obvious from the whistleblower complaint that he's relying on a lot of people. I suspect they're probably the same people. And they're feeding him this information more likely than not to help him build his whistleblower report. Second, we've seen a sustained campaign from people in the intelligence community trying to undermine the president. They've leaked transcripts of um, the call with the Australian prime minister. They've leaked transcripts of calls with the Mexican president. So the president and his team to minimize these leaks moved where the transcripts were saved. And now, what do they do? They turn that into a whistleblower complaint, and they trot out progressive allies to say this is improper. In fact, the Washington Post is running a story right now from a former person who worked for the national security team whose job was to compile these transcripts. And she says it is inappropriate to put these transcripts in a secure server, that that's not the purpose of the secure server. Do you know where this person works now? This person works for the Center for American Progress and is a senior vice president at the Center for American Progress. Now, if you don't know what CAP is, the Center for American Progress is a far-left think tank. So you had a careerist in the intelligence community who goes to work for a far-left think tank as a vice president and now returns to the Washington Post to say, hey, you can't put these transcripts here. That's wrong. This is just another data point that the intelligence community is full of careerists who are partisan leftists who hate the president. And so for the president and his team, they wanted to minimize damaging leaks to national security that undermined the president's ability to conduct foreign policy. So they secure the transcripts. And now the whistleblowers are saying, hey, you can't secure the transcripts. Well, we're securing them because you guys kept leaking them. Next, it's very clear the saboteurs are coordinating and the whistleblower complaint is not one person's work, but of multiple people. You can get that from the, the constant, multiple officials told me, multiple officials told me, one official told me, multiple officials told me, and they're giving the whistleblower detailed information. And by the way, the whistleblower complaint seems to be professionally structured as if a lawyer was, was um, if, as if a lawyer was employed. We can tell it was the work of multiple people because it leaked. The Democrats had advanced knowledge of it. How did the Democrats find out about the whistleblower complaint? The director of national intelligence the other day said it wasn't from him. So what I'm trying to, to ascertain is how would it run in all the mainstream media outlets? How did they get, even though they got a lot of it wrong, but they had the basics of it, that it involved the, the president of the United States talking to a foreign leader. So did anybody, you or anybody in your office, leak this to the Washington Post or NBC News? 
ranking member, I lead the intelligence community. We know how to keep a secret. Uh, as far as how that got into the press, I really do not know, sir. I just know that it's all over the place, and as you said, it's been reported by different uh, uh, media for the past several weeks. Where they get their information from, I don't know. Huh, where they get their information from, I don't know. How about from Democrats? I mean, the leak had to happen somewhere. How does the whistleblower complaint get out of the IG structure? How does Congress know that um, there, there's an urgency label? Someone had to have told. So, yeah, you can say there are multiple people working on this because isn't it interesting the whistleblower complaint leaked and the, and leaked and the whistleblower identity did not? Hmm. Isn't it curious we don't know who the whistleblower is yet? I, I wonder if that would undermine the whistleblower's credibility. And into all of this, they can say, if there's really concern here, litigate this at the ballot box. The election's a year away. Impeachment's ridiculous at this time. The Democrats are using people from inside the intelligence community to undermine the presidency. The president is having to take extraordinary steps to secure information that that Democratic leakers want to leak to embarrass the president and sabotage our national security. This needs to be dealt with at the ballot box. Trust the American people. And then when the media tries to dismiss all this, say, oh, how can you say, how can you say that the intelligence community is out to get you? Well, let me give you some names. Peter Strzok, Andrew McCabe, James Comey. Seems like there were people in in the uh, government bureaucracy related intelligence and law enforcement who have hated the president the entire time, who never wanted to give the president the benefit of the doubt, who have always interpreted everything about the president through the worst possible lens. And these people are working together to bring down the presidency. Now, you can also say, when they say, but doesn't the transcript show a quid pro quo? Then if you've built this case, you can say, no, it doesn't show a quid pro quo. It shows that the president was so convinced that the intelligence community is so partisan towards the Democrats, they were willing to turn a blind eye to corruption in the Obama administration. Look at what the Obama administration did with the IRS against Tea Party activists. We need to make sure they weren't doing it in, in Ukraine. And the president can spin it that way. But you got to have an overarching narrative. To run conspiracy theories on point, to, to, to run out and say, oh, what about Joe Biden? What about Joe Biden? What about Joe Biden? Well, it, it, it turns out there really isn't a there there as much as so many people want to believe it. There, there's no there there unless you can say, listen, the intelligence apparatus we're seeing is out to get this president and probably turn a blind eye to the last president because they were partisan Democrats. We need to double check. We need to be sure. No, it, it may not work. And the president coming out and tweeting about civil war and the president coming out and, and saying that this is all some sort of grand elaborate conspiracy and everything else the president's doing, it's not helping him. He's trying to find a message. You can tell in his tweets, he's, he's struggling to find some message. Here, here's your comprehensive message. The intelligence community has been working to undermine this presidency. The presidency had to take extraordinary steps to stop damaging leaks that undermine our national security. Now the intelligence community is, is lambasting those steps, claiming that that's bad. They're using partisan Democrats to say so. They have clearly been coordinating with Democrats on the release of this. And all the president was doing was trying to make sure that the intelligence community that is so aggressive against this president wasn't turning a blind eye to a president they were sympathetic to. There's your message. And then ultimately deal with it at the ballot box. 
But right now, screaming about civil war and stuff, that's not really helping. Now, there's a segue here. Because the Democrats have their own serious problems and they're going to have to do something they don't now want to do, but they're going to have to do it if they actually want to combat the president. That's right. You can go to theresurgent.com every day, and you can also call in here 877-97-ERIC, E-R-I-C-K. That's 877-973-7425. All right, let's read the president's tweets. The president has been on Twitter for a while this morning. Uh, beginning one hour ago, the greatest witch hunt in the history of our country. And then, uh, China trade turmoil, China urging a calm and rational solution. China's doing very poorly while the USA under your favorite president's leadership continues to soar to new heights. <laughs> that under your favorite president's leadership. The fake whistleblower complaint is not holding up. It is mostly about the call to Ukraine president, uh, which in the name of transparency, I immediately released to Congress. The whistleblower knew about nothing. Its secondhand description of the call is a fraud. Representative Adam Schiff illegally made up a fake and terrible statement, pretended it to be mine as the most important part of my call with Ukraine president, read it aloud to Congress and the American people. It bore no relationship to what I said. Uh, then he's tweeting again about the Beijing situation. Um, and then, uh, again, the president of Ukraine said there was no zero pressure to put on him case closed. And then in all caps, who changed the longstanding whistleblower rules just before submittal of the fake whistleblower report, drain the swamp and then hashtag fake whistleblower. Now, again, uh, peddling this, um, whistleblower rules change, uh, it's not actually true. Uh, we now know that the, the the form was not changed. There is still a question about a Congressional Research Service report that's uh, suggested uh, urgent. E essentially, the whistleblower law says if there's an urgent matter, it needs to be referred to Congress. And uh, one of the exemptions of that is things done by the president. And the Congressional Research Service seems to, my understanding is, talking to a friend of mine, uh, that they did release a report at the request of some member of Congress saying that actually urgency implies the president as well, which the law itself doesn't do. So there's a question about that. I suspect, again, this is all grasping at straws. The GOP needs a comprehensive message, and that message cannot be rabbit hole conspiracy theories. I think it's a fair statement to say, and I think the American public understands, the Democrats have been after the president since the Mueller investigation. We know from the Mueller investigation that uh, there were parts of the American bureaucracy and law enforcement and intelligence that hate this president and that are progressive, and they want to undermine the president. We know it is objective fact that these people tried to undermine the president by leaking call transcripts. We know it is an objective fact that this White House had to respond by securing those transcripts. After securing the transcripts, the presidency had to uh, deal with whistleblowers now saying that locking up those transcripts was inappropriate, but that's what the presidency had to do to ensure that the transcripts didn't leak. Some of them are sensitive transcripts that shouldn't leak. In fact, the uh, conversation with the crown prince of Saudi Arabia is in there about the Khashoggi killing. That clearly needs to be in there because obviously someone's going to leak that because so many of these people are in bed with the media. The media is using these people as sources. The other is, is a conversation with Vladimir Putin, and I suspect that's what this may be all about. They really want the Putin transcript. They've been peddling the Russia's conspiracy. But I think to say, hey, what about Joe Biden? What about Joe Biden? Uh, when there's no there there can be a problem. However, 
It is a problem for the Democrats, and the more they push back against it, the more it makes it a problem. We need to talk about the Democratic problems in impeachment when we come back here on The Eric Erickson Show. That is right, Mr. VoiceOver. You can be a part of the program, 877-97-ERIC, E-R-I-C-K, 877-973-7425. Let's talk about the Democrats' problems because, you know, the media is on the Democratic side. In fact, I was uh, texting with my friend Brent, um, and we both agree the media and Democrats are probably going to overplay their hand. We, we seem to have this history now of the Democrats and the media constantly overplaying their hands on these subjects. Well, I think they're going to, and they're probably going to on the issue of Hunter Biden. I think most Americans actually do recognize that there's a there there. Now, the there there is not the conspiracy theory. You know, most of the conspiracy about what Joe Biden did is, is from John Solomon at the Hill, uh, an opinion writer at the Hill, Based on conversations with the former prosecutor Lutsinsko in Ukraine, but Lutsinsko gave those interviews shortly before an election contest in Ukraine. Uh, he worked for the outgoing president and he wanted to make some very wild claims to undermine uh, the incoming administration and the uh, support of the Obama administration for what he believed was the incoming administration. Right after the election, he walked all those complaints back. Since he's had very limited contact with the um, with Giuliani, he's talked a couple of times to Giuliani. Uh, but I want to play this audio for you because this actually is very important to one of the big conspiracies that uh, Republicans are pushing, that somehow Joe Biden was protecting Hunter Biden, that his trip in March of 2016 to Ukraine, where he fired uh, the former prosecutor, not this guy, but his predecessor, uh, was all about protecting Hunter Biden. There's a punchline there we'll get to, but first listen to this. Did you find any corruption by then Vice President Biden or abuse of power or corruption by Joe Biden's son, Hunter? I have declared that I don't know any uh, possible uh, violation of Ukrainian law, once again, Ukrainian law by Biden and uh, Biden Jr. So he doesn't know of any violations of Ukrainian law by Biden or Biden Jr. Now, keep in mind uh, that the the prevailing conspiracy theory on the right uh, created by John Solomon at the Hill is about what Lucindo told him in a Skype interview. That Skype interview occurred shortly before the election in Ukraine, and Lucindo walked it all back after his guy lost. Now, you can say it was because he wanted to keep his job, or as, as people have pointed out, Lutsinsko was kind of a huckster in Ukraine, uh, wasn't taken very seriously. But he, even if you believe the Solomon conspiracy, that Biden was over there trying to protect his son, and that his trip in March of 2016 was all about protecting Hunter Biden and ensuring that uh, Hunter Biden be protected and that the prosecutor who was investigating him be fired. If, if you believe all of that, there's just a problem. I mean, this, this has been the conspiracy theory that Joe Biden flew over there, that his meeting he bragged about. Let me play you the audio again. This is Joe Biden bragging about going to Ukraine and in flying to Ukraine, he forced the prosecutor to fire or forced the government to fire the prosecutor. That is, I'm desperately concerned about the backsliding on the part of uh, uh, Kiev in terms of corruption. Uh, 
They made, I mean, I'll, I'll give you one concrete example. I, I, I was, not I, I, but it just happened to be that was the assignment I got. I, I, I got all the good ones. Uh, and uh, so I got Ukraine. And uh, um, I remember going over convincing our team, our brothers, to convincing us that we should be providing for loan guarantees. And I went over, I guess, the 12th, 13th time to Kiev and uh, and I was going supposed to announce that there was another billion dollar loan guarantee. And I had gotten a commitment from Poroshenko and from uh, Yatsenyuk that they would take action against the state prosecutor and they didn't. So they said they had they were walking out to the press conference said, no, I said, I'm not going to we're not going to give you the billion dollars. They said, you have no authority. You're not the president. The president said, I said, call him. <laughs> I said, I'm telling you, you're not getting the billion dollars. I said, you're not getting the billion. I'm going to be leaving here. And I think it was, what, six hours? I looked, I said, I'm leaving in six hours. If the prosecutor's not fired, you're not getting the money. Oh, son of a bitch. <laughs> got fired. And they put in place someone who was solid at the time. That, that, that is the premise of the conspiracy theory about Joe Biden. And that Joe Biden went over there. You hear him in his own words bragging about it. He went over March 2016, demanded that they fire the prosecutor, uh, demanded that they put someone else in place. The, the left says, well, he was really going over to, to battle corrupt corruption issues. He was worried they weren't investigating corruption. And the right says, actually, he was going over to protect his son. Uh, he, he needed that prosecutor fired because the prosecutor was looking at that company. There's a problem. We now know from the White House travel logs, Joe Biden didn't actually go to Ukraine. The entire conspiracy theory that Joe Biden flew over there to protect his son is premised on the trip that Joe Biden bragged about taking. And Joe Biden is an 80-year-old who's had multiple brain aneurysms and clearly is very forgetful in his old age. And he didn't actually go to Ukraine. He was wrong. He was wrong. What happened is that the Ukrainian president went to the White House and met with Barack Obama and had a private lunch with Joe Biden at the White House. And Joe Biden did, in fact, uh, push him to fire the prosecutor. But the, the premise that he went over there is wrong. And, and the whole conspiracy theory has been designed around taking Joe Biden at face value that, in fact, he did this. And it turns out he didn't actually do that. Uh, he never actually went over there. Now, uh, you do need to know that I think the Biden issue actually is a problem. I want to go back. John Jonathan Carl actually asked this in on May 13, 2014. Is there a concern, at least, about the appearance of a conflict related to Joe Biden? Hunter Biden has not taken a position with the largest oil and gas company, holding company in Ukraine. Is there any concern about at least the appearance of a uh, of a conflict there? See the vice president. I would refer you uh, to the vice president's office. I saw those reports. You know, Hunter Biden and other uh, members of the Biden family are obviously private citizens, and uh, where they work is not. Uh, does not reflect an endorsement by the administration uh, or by the vice president or president, but I would refer you to the vice president's office. Yeah, not exactly the standard they have for the Trump kids, is it? And see, that's the problem here, is that the Democrats have been saying that the Trump kids are getting rich off daddy being president. Well, you know, same goes here. And, and they're trying to dismiss this 
and they're trying to downplay it. And I think the American people fundamentally understand that when your daddy is president and your kids are getting rich off daddy being president or vice president, that's a problem. This is why the Democrats have been pounding the drum on, on the Trump organization. And when you come out so obnoxiously about it as well, it doesn't help. Here's Joy Behar from The View. Don't you think that politically it's kind of dumb for the Republicans to go after Joe Biden's son when he already lost a son and a yes. daughter and a wife? Politically, very uncomfortable. I mean, yeah. people feel sorry for Joe. And, yes, now, and, then, and it's not him. He didn't do a thing. Maybe his son was working. Basically, it boils down to nepotism. And Trump's got all his whole family working in the White House. We want to talk about nepotism. Well, see, and there you go. We can't talk about, let's talk about the Trumps. Let's not talk about about poor Joe. Yeah, Joe Biden does have a very tragic history. His his wife and, and child were killed in a car crash. Um, he has uh, another son, uh, Bo Biden, who died of a brain cancer tumor. I believe he's got a daughter who's been battling drug addiction. And uh, now he's got Hunter Biden as a cokehead who got all the, these fancy things. Well, I, I don't think it's going to play the the poor Joe stuff. Here, Here's Chris Jansen on MSNBC. And I would say, you know, Stephen Colbert was funny last night. He asked, um, he asked Bernie Sanders, are you insulted that Donald Trump uh, didn't try and get dirt on you yeah. from Ukraine? <laughs> um, there's another part of this. Could this help Joe Biden. I mean, mm-hmm. I thought that the picture, for example, that they put out there of him watching his only remaining child, living child, uh, being trashed, frankly, by the president of the United States can be effective. Um, In addition to being true. His, his only remain doesn't Joe have more children? He's got a, let's see, Ashley, is Ashley, let's see, okay, okay, okay. Um, I'm trying to think. He's he, Joe has had some some troubled children. Um, Hunter, of course, is, is actually the, I'm getting families confused. Yes, that's right. Yeah, Joe, Joe Biden has, He's had some screwed up kids. Let's just and and we should be sympathetic. His his wife and child tragically died in an accident. Uh, one child, his other children survived. Jill Biden raised the children as her own. It, it actually is a wonderful story, and it actually is very sad. But we shouldn't let the sadness of the story overshadow that Hunter Biden has been cashing in on his dad's fame. And as much as the Democrats want to dismiss it, and they do, there's something relevant there. Here's Hakeem Jeffries from Congress talking about this. At least three different uh, Ukrainian prosecutors have uncovered no wrongdoing with respect to the Joe Biden situation. It's my understanding that authorities in Great Britain looked into this situation, found no evidence of wrongdoing. No evidence of wrongdoing has emerged here in the United States of America. And so I'll leave it at that. Yeah. And Frank Sesno, formerly of CNN, now a a journalist professor. So how specifically should members of the media respond to the allegations about Hunter Biden? Look, the the president of the United States is going to keep that out there. Rudy Giuliani is going to keep that out there. It appears that these are talking points for Republicans and, and conservative media. So all media have a responsibility to look at it, to look at the record, to look at what is known. There are legitimate questions that this raises. Um, the Biden campaign's comment about you know, insisting that coverage should show that there was no connection or no connection that's been revealed between what the then vice president did when he went to Ukraine with respect to the aid and the role of his son, that's fair. 
I mean, there needs to be accurate coverage, and the coverage should be proportionate in its nature. You know, you don't harp on this hour after hour after hour. The story is Trump and his call to the Ukrainian president. The story is not fundamentally Biden. But those elements are there, and um, ignoring them would not be responsible either. Yeah, I don't think you can ignore them. I, I, I really don't think you can ignore the issue of Hunter Biden because, and this is why I think the Democrats have a problem here, they're playing up these sorts of issues <clears throat> with with Donald Trump, corruption and whatnot, trying to use his position for personal gain. That's what the Biden family is doing with Biden. I have long said Biden is going to be the Democratic nominee, and I don't think he can be the nominee at this point. If the Democrats want to move beyond that and focus solely on Trump, they've got to do something with Biden. Because there is a real story. There is a real there there. The accusations being made against the president do apply to Biden. Now, I think Republicans need to move beyond the elaborate conspiracy of what Joe Biden was doing. And they need to focus on the fact that everywhere Joe Biden went, his son had the ability to pick up government contracts. He had no experience in oil and gas, and yet somehow was paid $50,000 to be on this board in Ukraine. Biden flew with him on Air Force Two to negotiate a deal with China, and the guy was able to get a business contract out of China. There's a problem there. Michael Mukasey, the former attorney general under George Bush. What about Joe Biden? He was vice president, and he did take his son on Air Force Two. They traveled to China. They obviously were in Ukraine. Did he do something wrong? Wrong, unlawful? Yeah. Don't know. Um, depends on what he did. Um, the fact is that um, his son apparently got a job with um, a Ukrainian gas company, a business he knew nothing about, uh, with no demonstrable credential other than that he was Joe Biden's son. Um, Joe Biden also demanded that a prosecutor be fired who was investigating that company. Now, I, yeah. whether that was a criminal violation or not is a, is, is a matter that needs investigating, but certainly it was indiscreet. Yes, it was indiscreet. And it's something the Democrats have to deal with. Um, it, it's going to be real hard for them to keep firing at Barack or firing at Donald Trump when you've got the Biden family cashing in. It, you know, it also muddies their narrative against the Trump family. The Democrats have for a very long time been saying, look at the corruption in the Trump family. Look at look at these people. These people are corrupt. Well, Look at the Bidens. The, the issue of whether it was wise of Hunter Biden to take this position at Burisma when his father was uh, guiding policy in Ukraine uh, and, uh, you know, the wisdom of Biden and Biden staffers once they knew that not to ask Hunter to step down. I think mm-hmm. that is a legitimate subject of scrutiny. Um, I, I'm not saying it's illegal in any yeah. way. I'm just saying it's that's where the optics come into it. And maybe it's even worse than bad optics. Uh, it's sort of undermined American policy uh, of, of promoting, uh, you know, uh, fighting nepotism, fighting, you know, these kinds of problems that Ukraine has uh, has in a, a large scale. Yep. And that's the problem. That That is ultimately the problem here. It undermines the whole corruption allegation. The Democrats want to make this all about Donald Trump, all about Donald Trump's corruption. Very hard to make it all about Donald Trump and Donald Trump's corruption when your front runner in the Democratic Party has a family that has cashed in on his ties. It makes it very, very difficult uh, for them to say, uh, to rebut the Republican conspiracy that Joe Biden was trying to protect his son, Hunter. I mean, for God's sake, you, you just heard Joy Behar and, and Chris Jansen say, this is Joe Biden's only living son. It's his only living son. We can't go after Joe Biden for this because it's his only living son. That would be bad. That would be tragic, which just amplifies the Republican concerns of, look, this is Joe Biden's only living son. He's got a drug habit. 
He's got problems, and dad is trying to protect him because it's his only living son. Wouldn't you do that too? What wouldn't you do to protect your only living son? Can really be twisted on the Democrats. The only way for the Democrats to move on is to move on from Joe Biden. But there's a problem for the Democrats moving on from Joe Biden that's richly ironic. The New York Times, of all places, has the story of why the Democrats leaving Joe Biden behind because of the scandal will be fraught with all sorts of risk. Yes, this is a tease. You have to stick around for that. It is Eric Erickson here. The phone number, if you would like to be a part of the program, 877-97-ERIC. That's 877-973-7425. The New York Times, of all places, I did not expect to see this in the New York Times, has an article from the MIT Election Lab in their upshot column, which is their wonky election data-looking thing. One defining feature of the Democratic primary so far has been the party's leftward turn. In recent debates, candidates have supported policies like offering health insurance to undocumented immigrants, and commenters have warned about the potential electoral penalty of repelling persuadable voters. Political science research suggests that moderates generally fare better in elections, but much of our current understanding is speculative. There has been little directly relevant data on how voters are reacting in the moment. Are swing voters being put off? Are Democratic voters excited and more likely to stick with the party? In a recent survey experiment I conducted, the evidence pointed to both these possibilities, but with one pattern much more pronounced than the other. The embrace of progressivism solidifies support among Democratic survey respondents when thinking about 2020, but it repels independence with a negative effect that is stronger and clearer than signs of enthusiasm generated among Democrats. In other words, Democrats moving far left may secure their nomination. By the way, this is one reason Joe Biden is now coming out with the tax the wealthy plan. Biden has said it would be foolish to do a wealth tax like Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders want. Now his advisors are thinking they're going to do one, a Wall Street tax, if you will. It's to win the Democratic nomination, but the further left they go on this, the harder it becomes to win the general election because you do need persuadable independence. You at least need them to sit home, and they may actually—the Democrats may lose suburbia by going too far left. The suburbia doesn't like the president. What if there's a President Pence? Hmm? What if there's a President Pence with a Vice President Haley running? Hmm? I mean, that fundamentally changes the dynamic for the Democrats who've made this far leftward shift that fundamentally changes the dynamics, fundamentally undermines their position. They're going to have to do something. Moving far left may cost them the general. You know, I mentioned this the other day. I was giving a, a speech in, in Fayette County. I was talking to the Fayette County Republican Party. I said, you may not like them, but one of the great books on running for office is from James Carville and Paul Begala, who ran Clinton's campaign. Um, one of the things that they write is that you should never do anything that uh, wins you the primary and costs you the election. That your strategy is to win the election, not to win the primary. Your overall strategy is to win the election. And that may cause you to to have to do certain things, uh, but and to win the primary because you got to win the primary to win the election. But you shouldn't do things that cost you the general when you win the the primary. Again, your strategy is to win the election. The primary is not the election you want to win. And what the Democrats are doing right now is they're doing very short focused. Let's win the primary and let's win the primary by going as far left as we can. That doesn't help them. 
Because if you go as far left as you can to win the primary, you're then locked in on your record. And no amount of media sympathy for you is going to help when you run into the general election with far left proposals like banning straws and banning cows and taxing cows and uh, shutting down nuclear power and getting rid of all the coal plants in Appalachian, putting people on the unemployment line. These things don't actually work well. They're going to have to come up with something, something else. And having Joe Biden as their front runner on top of it all, as he's moving to the left, is going to hurt them. And it's going to hurt them largely because Biden moving left to win also in this situation has the corruption angle piled up on top of him. These things don't work well. It's like the Hollywood progressives coming out and attacking the president uh, when they claim they want climate change. All it does is signal to a bunch of conservatives that these people really don't want climate change. They're just partisan activists. It is a religion to them. The Democrats can't have it both ways. It's almost like people have forgotten how to message. Has our politics become so dumb and driven by what people see on Twitter that they can't come up with a comprehensive message? Because neither side right now seems capable of doing that. And it's undermining both of them, which is actually kind of hilarious and great for radio ratings, I do have to admit, as they flounder. Hello there, it is Eric Erickson. Welcome to the Eric Erickson Show. The phone number, if you would like to call in and be a part of the program, 877-97-ERIC, E-R-I-C-K, 877-973-7425. You can also get me on social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, other places, uh, at E-W Erickson, E-W-E-R-I-C-K-S-O-N. Okay, um... You know, I, I, I'm going to stick with impeachment here. For, for those of you just tuning in, normally I focus on Georgia here, and, and I feel compelled to that there's actually news in Georgia we need to talk about, some of it relegated to impeachment, but I just I, I want to sound like a broken record first. The president is, is continuing on Twitter this morning. I, I do think most Americans don't care about Twitter, but I, I do think that people in Washington do. I think when the president's tweeting about civil wars, if he is gone, it it hurts him. It doesn't help him. I also think that the president and his team need a comprehensive message strategy. It needs to be on point and on brand. And when the president rushes to Twitter to say whatever pops into his head that sounds good, that undermines that entire communication strategy. It The left is clearly coalescing behind a common narrative of corruption and personal benefit from office. The right needs to find something. And right now you have an assimilation of a bunch of conspiracy theories thrown together, many of which are easily dismissed. And it it doesn't help. In fact, I want to play this audio from Jake Tapper uh, with Jim Jordan. It was a very painful interview. Um, the Hunter Biden stuff comes up to some degree in it. I I, I don't want to play the whole interview, but this this is just kind of painful to watch. And uh, Jim Jordan is a friend. I, I really like Jim Jordan, and I think the world is Jake Tapper, who I think is a very fair journalist. This was just a, I mean, Jim Jordan, to his credit, was doing the best he could with the material he has. There just wasn't a lot there. He was paid by a foreign company. Yeah, he was paid by Burisma. 
But Joe Biden was trying to get a, a, a prosecutor who was not pursuing corruption fired. And it was it's supported. It's amazing the it gymnastics was, you guys will go through to defend what the, you really sir, think. It's the not vice gymnastics. The vice it's facts. The vice president. And I would think States. somebody who's been accused of things in the last year or two would be more sensitive about throwing out wild allegations. I'm not throwing people. out wild. Like, I'm throwing out the facts. You're, you're, uh, the the what? The what? prosecutor was not pursuing corruption. That's why the entire West wanted him fired, including anti-corruption activists in Ukraine. I don't understand what you don't get about that. I, I get that. I'm just talking about this specific case that there's been reporting on. And the facts of that specific case are what he was paid per month, $50,000. Like I said, that's more than some of the folks I get the privilege of representing in the 4th District of Ohio get paid in a year. He's getting that $50,000 a month. The vice president's son, he got hired for what? The president's daughter right now is having all sorts of copyrights uh, granted in foreign countries. That doesn't alarm you. The president's sons are doing all sorts of come business on. all over the world. That doesn't yeah, alarm come you. On. What's the, come on? The, either, the there's a the, either there's a principle the that, people should not, that people should not benefit the from previous, their connections the, the or there isn't. The previous administration's FBI went after this president on July 31st. They did a they crappy job then because they, they didn't even acknowledge there was an no, investigation after until after the election. They spied on two Americans associated with President Trump's campaign. They put Peter Strzok in charge of that if campaign. They were, the, guy who, the guy who said Trump should lose okay. $100 million to zero. They allowed, they allowed if, Jim Comey leaked documents to get a special sir, counsel. They used the dossier to go get a warrant. Okay, to spy now we're back to the dossier. No, I'm just Strzok. saying that's what happened to President Trump. If, and then in, and now, now that none of that worked. None of that. I understand so you want to change the subject, but the president no, was pushing the president of Ukraine to investigate a political rival. I cannot believe that that is okay with you. I can't believe it's okay with you. It, if this is a principle, it's not okay because he didn't. It, it, but he didn't do that. It's in he the transcript. It. We all I read, read it. the transcript. He says that the Biden need got to, to be read investigated. That's what you guys do. You guys don't read things in context. The context is that that comes up when Just, Zelensky's talking about all, right. all investigations open and candid. Yeah, listen, so if you'll recall the what Jake Tapper is bringing up to Jim Jordan, throwing it in his face, sounds like it was a moment of frustration, was Jordan was falsely accused of covering up a uh, sex scandal uh, when he was a wrestling coach, an abuse scandal. Uh, there's never really been any evidence of it, um, but... Um, he was accused, and I think that one of the problems the media has is that they're so focused on Donald Trump. And I, I think the left needs to concede that there's a real focus on Donald Trump. There, there's, there's an obsessive relentlessness in their focus on Donald Trump. Everything is about Donald Trump now. Every topic is in some way related to the politics of Donald Trump. You, you have the situation... Uh, over the weekend, Mark Hamill, who plays Luke Skywalker in Star Wars, um, the um, Jared and Ivanka Trump, it was Ivanka Trump's Twitter account. She put up a very cute picture of her child um, dressed as a stormtrooper in Halloween costume, big Star Wars fans. And Mark Hamill used the opportunity to blast Trump on Twitter. Everything is about Trump. You can't just take a, a cute picture of a child in a stormtrooper costume. It's got to be an attack on Trump. Everything. The media and the left are fixated on Donald Trump. And I think it causes the media to miss where the public actually is. Because I do think that the public overall recognizes there is a real issue of corruption with Biden and his family. 
and that it is hypocritical and duplicitous of the media to go after Donald Trump for corruption and personal benefit from office and his kids benefiting from office um, as it does and then completely ignoring Biden, writing off Biden altogether. It's a very difficult exchange there, though, because I, I do think that as conservatives push into this conspiracy theory, it undermines their ability to defend the president because it is thoroughly debunked. In fact, the president's own uh, Department of Homeland Security advisor came out this weekend, or I, I should say former Homeland Security advisor. He, he, President Trump put him in as his Homeland Security advisor. He retired a while back. Um, and he said that the Department of Homeland Security thoroughly debunked the CrowdStrike allegations. The CrowdStrike allegations are a conspiracy uh, that uh, is kind of bizarre when you think about it, that the Clinton team did not allow the FBI to inspect their server. Instead, they contracted with an outside team that took the server to Ukraine and inspected the server in Ukraine and, and got it out of the uh, FBI. In fact, the FBI did look at the server. And that's how they were able to determine the Russians did hack it. But if you ask most people on the right, most people on the right are convinced that the FBI didn't look at it because the Democrats took it out of the country to this company called CrowdStrike. And the president's advisor to Homeland Security said this was thoroughly debunked. The president was told repeatedly this wasn't a true story. And yet Giuliani pursued it to the point that Giuliani's dragged the president into an impeachment scandal by pursuing debunked conspiracies. That the, the geriatric has-beens on Fox News parroting these conspiracy theories are what are getting the president impeached. He's overdosed on these these 70-something-year-old pundits on Fox spreading conspiracy theories that even the Fox anchors are pushing back on, but the president hears them and says, yeah, that's the ticket. But then there's another angle to this we should be honest about. Where is intent? I mean, is there intent? The Democrats would say that the intent is that the president is trying to hurt Joe Biden, his competitor. I think Republicans have a very good and plausible argument that the president just so thoroughly believes the media and the uh, intelligence community are biased against him that he's doing his due diligence as commander-in-chief to make sure that the prior administration wasn't engaged in corruption and the intelligence community and the media let him get away with it. I, I think there's a plausible argument for the president. You can disagree with him. You can disagree with the conclusion, but I, I don't think you can so thoroughly dismiss it. I don't think you can. But I just, I, I have a hard time going down the road with the Democrats on, on a lot of this stuff because I don't think it's impeachable. I, I don't think what the president did was impeachable. I do think that if you can show that the president did withhold lawfully appropriated funds by Congress to undermine the vice president, to pressure Ukraine to do something that, that hurt Joe Biden. I, I, I do think then that's impeachable. But there's no evidence he did that. There's no evidence at all the president did that. And the Democrats can't seem to find it. The whistleblowers can't seem to find it. But the rest of this stuff is just noise. And the Republicans are buying so much into the noise, they're failing the president. They're failing to come up with a comprehensive narrative to help the president. That the intelligence community we know, going back to the Russia investigation, had people who didn't like the president. They have routinely leaked information, including uh, transcripts of calls with foreign leaders to embarrass the president. 
They have worked through the FBI to try to get the president, and they keep failing and they keep grasping for straws, and this is just more of it. It's very clear that someone leaked the whistleblower complaint. We're not paying attention to the fact that the whistleblower complaint was leaked. How was it leaked? Who leaked it? We should find the leaker. Who leaked it? We presume it was the whistleblower. Was it the whistleblower? If it wasn't the whistleblower, who did it? There's a story there to tell the American people that these people are relentless in pursuing the president and undermining the president and making the president look like he is the victim of a group of progressives inside government out to get him. This, this throwing stuff into the wind about Joe Biden this, Joe Biden that, conspiracy this, crowd strike that, doesn't help. It undermines the core narrative that there are people who have been working to undermine and delegitimize the president since day one. And it helps the president to have Hillary Clinton come out and call him delegitimate, uh, illegitimate. We're seeing that as well. But then you do have some Republicans coming out as well. Bob Goodlatte, uh, w- one example of that, coming out and and questioning the process thus far with impeachment. And Hugh Hewitt this weekend on Meet the Press made a very good point about how Adam Schiff has conducted himself in this entire matter. And again, Schiff, I think, works to the president's advantage. Schiff came out, made up a transcript, claimed this was the transcript of the president, undermined uh, his credibility in the process. The most important thing that was said this morning thus far is Adam Schiff came on mm-hmm. and he went full. Alice in Wonderland, Queen of Hearts. Verdict first, trial later. I believe he destroyed his credibility this morning on this show as a fair arbiter of this process. The key other thing about is there enough time, is there a middle? That middle is tired of investigating President Trump. It has gone on for two years, and the most interesting part of the Nancy Pelosi decision to go for a fast impeachment is the implicit but very real concession that the Mueller report had no impeachable offense, no obstruction, no collusion. It's gone. They have erased it from the record. So Adam Schiff is biased and Nancy Pelosi has admitted that Mueller exonerated Trump. Listen, I, I think Schiff hurts the Democrats themselves. It turns this into a very partisan affair and allows the Republicans uh, ways to undermine the entire thing. Uh, here's Bob Goodlatte, congressman, who is involved in the Clinton impeachment situation. The uh, impeachment process to be successful needs uh, four things. First of all, it needs to be fair and with an orderly process. And that in 1974, uh, with the Watergate impeachment uh, by the Democratic Congress, of Richard Nixon, they were scrupulously fair, and they went to uh, the, the the House of Representatives as a whole and got approval uh, to proceed before they issued subpoenas related to an impeachment because Chairman Rodino at the time said, we don't have this authority under the rules without the House passing that resolution. And Democrats have shown no signs of that kind of fairness, uh, nor have they shown any sign that they're going to give the president's counsel uh, the kind of uh, access to cross-examine witnesses to testify before the committee. It looks like they'll only accept a letter uh, from the president's counsel after the fact. If these things persist, I think the appearance is going to be uh, that this is indeed a kangaroo court where they're trying to railroad this process uh, and move it along expeditiously and not a quasi-judicial proceeding where the parties and the public uh, view this as being treated fairly. Secondly, as you know, it needs to be bipartisan. And I see no sign of bipartisanship in this case. Yes. And that starts with uh, the majority treating the minority fairly in the process. Exactly. Yes. 
Um, this process right now is so biased towards the Democrats. In fact, you know, Nancy Pelosi hasn't had a vote on impeachment yet. Do you know why she hasn't had a vote on impeachment? This is, uh, Doug Collins actually brought this up, but I've now heard it from several other congressmen, including one Democrat. The reason Pelosi hasn't brought up impeachment yet is one, she doesn't want some of these moderate Democrats like Lucy McBath from here in Georgia to have to take a position yet. But two, if they began a formal impeachment inquiry, then the rules would be changed so that the Republicans and Democrats alike would be able to call witnesses and rebut. Um, They would have to structure it with due process. Uh, They would have to follow laws that they do not right now have to follow based on past precedent going all the way back to Andrew Johnson and his impeachment. There were certain things the Democrats would have to do. And as long as they don't have a formal vote on a beginning impeachment right now, they don't have to follow those. They, they don't have to give due process. They don't have to allow exculpatory evidence. They don't have to do any of that. They can just keep calling partisan after partisan after partisan. Now, I suspect what's going to happen is what the Democrats will do is they'll call the whistleblower. And they will have the whistleblower behind closed doors. In fact, uh, the whistleblower is expected to testify in the next week or two after Congress comes back from recess. That's another thing, by the way. Democrats say, oh, we got concentration camps. We need to deal with the concentration camps. Hey, let's impeach the president. No, wait, let's take two weeks off. It really makes the whole thing not look very serious. Now, apparently the whistleblower is going to testify behind closed doors and provide a list of witnesses and documents that should be requested by the Democrats. At that point, maybe they will go into formal impeachment proceedings. I don't know. But right now, as long as they don't have to do it, as long as they're not doing it, they can protect themselves from having to comply with due process and allow the president's team to provide exculpatory evidence. That's why they're doing what they're doing. That's right. I will be sending out a recipe this week. You can get it by texting the word recipe to 33777. Text the word recipe to 33777. And on Wednesday or Thursday, I forget when I have it set, I'll send you out a recipe. I'm not telling you what it is. Um, there you go. Now, we do need to get into Georgia news in this hour, which is what I tend to do in this hour. This is a show across the state of Georgia, and we got to talk about John Ossoff. John Ossoff. He is launching his big voter registration thing. It's going to be the biggest ever. I I, I got an issue here. Uh, the AJC is reporting John Ossoff. He kicked it off with uh, John Lewis and several other Democrats around the state. First of all, I, I do find it funny uh, that you've got a guy who's never been elected to anything running against uh, three Democrats who have, uh, claiming he's got some sort of mantle based on a loss. Uh, very much, very Stacey Abrams-ish, but can you out Stacey Abrams, Stacey Abrams? Because what Ossoff is trying to do essentially is to out Stacey Abrams, Stacey Abrams. It's going to be the largest voter registration drive ever, so does that mean he's going to be able to do what Stacey Abrams couldn't do? If so, why should Stacey Abrams be the nominee in 2022 against Brankham? I mean, that's what Abrams wants. That's why Abrams isn't running for the Senate now. Abrams wants nothing to do with the Senate. She wants her eye on the prize. She wants the Democrats to pour money into Georgia in 2020 because she has said all along that 2022, 2024, that's when Georgia becomes competitive. That's when Georgia really becomes the time. And see, I, I had forgotten this. But back in 2016, the AJC ran an article with Stacey Abrams where she suggested 2022 to 2024 would be the period of demographic shift in Georgia where the Democrats could take it back. Hmm. Now she's she's coming along. She's got her eye on the prize for 2022. 
And yet she wants the Democrats to pour money into Georgia in 2020 to help her. But along comes little Johnny Ossoff to say he's going to do it bigger and better than everyone. He's not going over so well with people this time. Uh, if you if you see the big endorsements, most of the big endorsements, Hank Johnson and John Lewis have come out for John Ossoff, but he worked for both of them, so that's to be expected. But the big endorsements, they're all going for Teresa Tomlinson. And it's very interesting to see why they're all going for Teresa Tomlinson. The big issue, the reason they're going for Teresa Tomlinson is because they view her as more moderate, which is hilarious. Teresa Tomlinson is out trying to out-progressive Ted Terry. I mean, she's out trying to say Ted Terry has a, a lesser score on some progressive index than she has. But you got, I think, Roy Barnes has come out for her. Uh, Andrew Young has come out for her. Some business leader I've seen recently has come out for her. Several others have come out for her. And it's all because they think she would be a more reasonable, less progressive pick to go up against David Perdue. Meanwhile, you've got Ted Terry has now come out in favor of scrapping private insurance altogether, wants to ban private insurance in the United States, including here in Georgia, obviously, and make everybody go on Medicaid for all. It's not going to go over so well. What does John Ossoff want? Nobody knows what John Ossoff wants. John Ossoff wants a voter registration drive. Y'all, the, the, this entire issue here is you've got two candidates trying out progressive each other. Teresa Tomlinson and uh, Ted Terry. You've got Sarah Riggs Amico trying to be the businesswoman driven to bankruptcy because of Donald Trump. Uh, have some sympathy on me. And you've got John Ossoff, the, hey, remember my loss the last time? They really don't have a deep bench, do they, the Democrats? And Ossoff now trying to muddy the water with Stacey Abrams' accomplishments. It isn't going to go over so well. Now, when we come back, Georgia Power wants to raise your power prices. We should talk about it, why they're wanting to do it, and why it's really not that bad a thing. It is Eric Erickson here, the Eric Erickson Show across the state of Georgia and over the series of tubes known as the Internet to everyone across Facebook. The phone number here is uh, 877-97-ERIC. That's 877-973-7425. If you live in Georgia, we need to talk about Georgia Power and its pending rate increase. This is from uh, the Savannah newspaper. State regulators today will begin considering a proposed bill hike for Georgia Power customers. If approved, the average Georgia Power residential customer using 1,000 kilowatt hours per month and paying about $125 uh, would see the monthly bill rise $24 to $149 a month. By 2020, it would be spread out over time. This is a Southern Alliance for Clean Energy Analysis, so be a little bit skeptical of that. Here's what's going on, and you need to understand this. I, I, you know, I've been very critical of Georgia Power in the past and some of the things they've done. Uh, I, I'm proud of them for sticking with Plant Vogel, but this is actually a necessary increase. Um, they're essentially raising the base rate from $10 to $17.50 over a number of years. What is it? Uh, yeah, uh, base rate is $10 a month to $17.95 by 2022. Um, the base rate is, is the, the flat rate that everybody pays shared across the board. The best way to think about what's going on with Georgia Power is first to realize they haven't actually raised their base rate in something like 30 years. Uh, it hasn't really been raised. Uh, and so now they want to do it, but they want to spread it out from now to 2022 uh, to bring it more in line. Uh, it'll still be about the cheapest power in the country. 
But the way you need to think about this, this is one of the, the, the offsets of green energy problems that the green energy people don't want to talk about. Um, and in fact, they're trying to obfuscate. You read through this article and, and there's just all sorts of obfuscation from green energy folks as to what's going on here. You need to understand. Let's think about electric cars for a minute. You go out and you buy a Tesla. I wouldn't mind having a Tesla. I'm convinced the company's going to be bankrupt in a couple of years, but it's actually kind of awesome concept. It's got big screen. It's like getting behind the, the, the wheel of the Starship Enterprise when you get in a Tesla. And they've got the ludicrous mode where you push the button and you shoot off at like 100 miles an hour. It's actually kind of awesome. But a Tesla uses a battery. A Tesla does not go to the gas station and get gas. So what happens with the Tesla? Well, you don't pay the tax. Now they've adjusted it somewhat in Georgia to put in some fees. They've gotten rid of the subsidy that allowed people to buy electric cars. But for the longest time, if you bought an electric car in Georgia, you could ride on the roads in Georgia, but you were not buying gas. And it is the tax on gas at the gas pump that that money is allocated then to fix the roads, the highway fund. And so you essentially were freeloading by having an electric car. You weren't paying your share. Now, whether we like to admit it or not, we live in a, a system where we have a government and our taxes go to build things like roads. And the way the government has decided to tax us is everyone drives a car. Everyone who pays the tax is somebody who drives a car. And cars pay the tax by filling up at the pump. And a portion of that money goes to the highway fund and that builds the roads. Well, if you're in an electric car, you're essentially freeloading off of everyone else. Now, you may not like that term, particularly if you're a Tesla owner, but that's essentially what it amounted to. Your tax dollars that would go to pay for the roads you drive on, you're no longer paying the tax dollars. Other people were paying the tax to build the roads that you were driving on, and the government decided that's not fair, and they tweaked it uh, to make changes to how electric cars are paid for so that they can capture some of the costs for those car owners also driving on roads. The problem with what Georgia Power is dealing with right now are a couple of things. As more and more people are particularly rich people, and you do need to actually specify it's rich people doing it. It's not poor people doing this. As more and more rich people put solar panels on their roofs, the solar industry has been able to convince the state to force Georgia Power to buy that energy. Now, i got to tell you... Um, I went down to Hawkinsville to M&T Meats. If you've never been to, Haw to m and Meats down in Hawkinsville, it's worth the drive from Atlanta or, or wherever you are. Uh, from North Georgia, go down to m and Meats. It, it is a f amazing butcher shop. You can go down there and they've got anything you can think of. And if you don't see it behind the counter, you ask them and they probably get it. I, for example, wanted to get um, pig fat to render my own lard so I can make tortillas and pies and things like that. You know, the processed lard you get at the grocery store is just not the same. Uh, and, and sure enough, I got big chunks of pork uh, that I could take home and render the lard from also got, I mean, they have briskets and they've got fantastic chicken breasts and it's not those giant super fat steroid chickens you get at the grocery store. It's, it's just great chicken anyway. Uh, so head, headed down to Hawkinsville, uh, you, you go down I-16, you get off exit six, go to road, you, or whatever it is, exit 18. And eventually you head down the Golden Isle Parkway and you come across this massive solar uh, field. It's just, I mean, Hundreds of acres. It'll be the largest solar facility east of the Mississippi, I think, when it's finally developed. Georgia Power is building this because the federal government has demanded they get off of coal. So they're building nuclear and they're building solar, all to satisfy the demands of the environmentalists. Well, one of the things the environmentalists have also done is they've 
passed a law that requires Georgia Power to buy excess energy from them. So Georgia Power, you've got all these rich people who put solar solar panels on the roofs. I wish I had them. They run their power on their home while they generate enough excess electricity that Georgia Power is forced to buy that electricity. And that is how these solar panel companies make money. It's not me getting the money from Georgia Power. What happens is these solar power companies essentially lease the roof of your home. And they value the lease at the value of the energy created to power your home. So you don't actually pay anything for the solar panel. You you pay installation costs, things like that. And then the excess energy is sent to Georgia Power. The solar companies have forced Georgia Power by law to buy it from them. And that's how they get their money back. There's a problem there. You, this sounds good, but there's a problem. The people who have the home, they're not actually paying Georgia Power any money. Now, you think that's a good thing, but it's very much like the guy riding the Tesla down the road that you're paying for. See, everybody else is paying for the power lines for Georgia Power. That's where the base fee comes in. Everybody's paying for the base fee. And the base fee money goes to Georgia Power maintaining our electric infrastructure, the power grid. People have to pay to maintain the power grid. The money doesn't come from the government. Georgia Power's got to maintain it. Where does Georgia Power get the money? Well, Georgia Power gets the money by billing the customers. When rich people take themselves off the power grid by putting solar panels, the rest of us have to pay more. Even though, here's the catch, the rich people are then using the power grid to transmit their power to Georgia Power, forcing Georgia Power to pay for it. You see how the scam works? You put your solar panels on the roof. The money flows to the power grid, and Georgia Power is forced to buy it without being able to charge those people the access to the grid. So the rest of us have to pay more. And now as as more and more of this clean energy comes on and solar power comes on, you're seeing more of this. What's so rich here, let, let me read you this. This is from um, as one of the solar solar power companies. When you put more of the bills into the fixed portion, into the fees where it can't be adjusted based on how much electricity you use, that means there's less incentive to use less electricity. It takes away customers' control to reduce their electricity bill, which is a problem in its own right. So, so you get this. So... So the, the, the environmentalists have encouraged rich people to go with alternative energy, solar power, windmills, and the like. They forced Georgia Power to buy that energy, whether they wanted it or not. Georgia Power can't charge those people for use of the electric grid. So the rest of our fees have to go up, and now they're saying, wait, 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 wait. You can't do that because that'll mean there's less incentive for people to control how much energy they're using. In other words, what the energy companies want is for the rest of us to have our power usage, our our power bills go up even higher. See, what Georgia Power is doing with the base rate is... They're spreading it across to everyone who uses the grid. And in fact, the solar power people, to some degree, they've got to pay a little bit of a fee uh, to Georgia Power because they're sending power out on the grid, but it's not as significant as the rest of us. So Georgia Power spreads this entire cost across to everybody, makes it fair. We all use the power grid. We all get power. There's a base charge for everybody. The solar power people then don't use any more power 
and force Georgia Power to buy power from them, whether Georgia Power wants the power or not, in the name of forcing Georgia Power, power to use solar energy. That then causes the rest of us to have our energy prices go up. Because Georgia Power is forced to buy power from people it may not want to buy power from. It forces them into a contract they may not want. While also, it's, it's having to pay these people. These people aren't using power. That takes people off the grid for Georgia Power, which means the rest of us who are on the grid have to pay more per kilowatt hour to, to cover the costs of the coal being burned, the nuclear power, uh, the solar farm that Georgia Power is building. And so what Georgia Power's decided to do is, you know, these people who are hurting everyone else, we're going to increase the base charge that even they need to pay to tap into the grid. And so that's going to keep costs low. They haven't raised this fee in 30 years or something like that. So they're going to raise it to $17.95 by 2022. It's at $10 right now. So it'll go up $7.95 over the course of the next few years. And everybody will pay it. And that'll help cover the costs of maintaining the grid. That'll help cover the costs of installing the solar power plants. That'll help cover all the costs. And so what is the response from the environmentalists? They're essentially giving away the game. They've taken people off the grid, which raises our price. They forced Georgia Power to buy power from people Georgia Power may not want to, which raises the rest of our costs. And now they're saying, hey, Georgia Power, you can't raise the base price because if you do, then people won't have any incentive to save power. In other words, what environmentalists are admitting is they've been doing this as a long-term play to drive up your electricity costs so that you're forced to stay in the dark, so that you're forced to save power. And that punishes poor people. Their argument... Their argument is that raising the base price from $10 to $17.95 is a tax on poor people. Never mind that we all pay it, but, but they're saying, hey, poor people are disproportionately going to pay. No, everybody's equal here. Every Georgia Power person is equal here. And you know what happens by raising the base price? I mean, the environmentalists are trying to talk out of both sides of their mouth. When you put more of the bill in the fixed portion into the fees that can't be adjusted on how much electricity you use, that means there's less incentive to use less electricity. Think about that. They're essentially admitting they want to tax poor people. They're, they're trying to say that, oh, this is going to hurt poor people. Listen to this. Listen to this. When you put more of the bill into the fixed portion and it's the same amount for each customer must pay regardless of how much electricity they use, it's the people who use the least electricity who have the smallest bills who have the greatest proportional increase on their bills. What? What? No. No. See, they're spreading out the base to every single person. And that allows Georgia Power to keep the per kilowatt hour rate low. If Georgia Power did not increase the base rate for all these people, including the rich people, the solar panel people, have taken off the grid, then the rate of energy for poor people would be even higher because the per kilowatt hour would go up. So the more energy they use, the more they would pay. And that would hurt them disproportionate to a richer person who could afford the bill. This is gobbledygook doublespeak word salad from these environmental activists. What they're essentially admitting out of one breath is that if you raise the base rate and spread it across every single taxpayer, no one has an incentive to stop using energy because it doesn't look to be that expensive. And then they're trying to say, oh, and this is going to hurt the poor more than everybody else. 
You know what would really hurt the poor more than anybody else? Is if Georgia Power did what the environmentalists want them to do, and that was to raise the per kilowatt hour. Because then every hour of energy you use is even more expensive. And so the poor person who uses an hour of power from Georgia, hey, that rhymed, an hour of power from Georgia Power has less money to pay that increased price than if a lot of these costs are put into the base rate that everybody pays. Spread the costs out among everybody, just like the roads. Spread the costs of building roads out to every single person who drives on the road. And then along come the environmentalists with their battery-powered cars that use Georgia Power, by the way. Where, where do the batteries get their power? The batteries get their power from the power grid. Hmm. But then they get out on the roads and they don't pay the gas tax. And they get mad when everybody else says, wait a second, you're using the roads too. We don't want everybody's taxes to have to go up to build the roads. We just want the people who actually drive on the roads to pay the tax to build the roads. And you've exempted yourself from that by buying this car. We need to add a fee to your car to help cover the cost of the roads that you use. Essentially, that's what's happening here. We've got rich people. And again, I, I, I say that. I'm not trying to do class warfare stuff here. It's just the reality. It is rich people with those giant houses on West Paces Ferry that all face south and have giant solar panels. And they're thinking, hmm, I'm saving me a lot of money. And Georgia Power has got to pay me or at least pay the, the solar panel company for the power, whether or not Georgia Power wants it or not. And the result is that Georgia Power's acquisition calls for power has gone up because it's forced into deals with these people it may not want. They're building their own damn solar power plant just near me. And they're building the nuclear power plant. And yet they're forced by these environmentalists to do this. And now the environmentalists are saying, oh, no, you can't raise the base cost because that will mean that people won't have any incentive to stop burning power which is kind of an admission that Georgia Power is actually helping everybody by raising the base rate as opposed to jacking up the per-hour usage, which really would hurt the poor. I mean, in this one one news story, the environmentalists are trying to have it both ways. Again, Georgia Power hasn't raised the base rate in years. And now we've got people coming in from out of state who are trying to essentially punish you for using power. And they recognize that if Georgia Power does what it wants to do, then you're not going to be punished. And if you're not going to be punished, you have no incentive to stop turning the lights on. And that's what this is all about from the left, is they actually want your power costs to go up significantly the more you use energy. And Georgia Power's found a way to cover its costs for its grid, cover its costs for its infrastructure, and cover its costs to deliver power to you without significantly jacking up your rates. You would think you would want to go along with this. But the environmentalists want you to oppose it because they know the alternative will be to raise the per hour price even more. And that will then make you realize, oh my gosh, power is so expensive, I can't use it anymore. Oh, and by the way, that would also punish the electric car people. Oh, we'll get back into the national stuff here in a few minutes, and I'll take your phone calls as well. 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. But I did want to point out uh, that it is the 30th anniversary of the Georgia National Fair, and it kicks off this week. Uh, on Thursday, the Georgia National Fair opens in Perry. The fair began in 1990 with 270,000 people attending. 
Today, it draws about half a million people over 11 days. It drew nearly that many last year, even after having to shut down for a day when Hurricane Michael struck the state. This is from Jason Voorhees in the Macon Telegraph. Um, it's a half million people will go to the fair. I wonder if we'll see any politicians come by. You know, that that's one thing. We haven't actually seen the Georgia National Fair doesn't get the same attention as the Texas State Fair or the Iowa Fair or things like that. And so we don't get all these presidential politicians coming through. I wonder if we will this year, this year as Georgia becomes uh, more of a hotly contested state. Um, what's so interesting about it is the annual budget is $10 million. The state provides a million dollars of that budget, most of which goes to youth programs. The remainder comes from revenue generated by the fairgrounds from the events held there. A study conducted by the University of Georgia determined the Agri Center generates at least $5 million in sales taxes each year from people coming into the state for events there. The study found overall the facility, that is the, the state fair facility in Perry, generates $80 million annually, a good return on that million dollars. So it began... The idea back in 1983, Larry Walker, then the state representative, visited a youth hog show in Macon. Of course, it began with a hog show. He thought they deserved a better facility, so he was from Perry and invested. And Perry uh, became the two finalists. And of course, Perry won when the powerful state legislator was in charge of it. <laughs> It would have honestly been better to have it in Macon just objectively because of its location. But um, nonetheless, it's a huge facility. I was actually down there. So I, I mentioned I drove down to M&T Meats. And then on the way back, I went by. There's a great outfitter in Perry. If you drive down 75, I got to go to Adel Outfitters. I, I love Adel Outfitters. Um, so, uh, shout out to the folks at Adel who I know are listening down there on the radio. Uh, I love Adel Outfitters. They're fantastic, but it's quite a hike from my house to get down there. Although I need to, it's an awesome place. Great gun selection. Uh, but Broken Arrow Outfitters, it used to be Brandon Outfitters, is now Broken Arrow Outfitters in Perry, is on the road uh, near the Perry Fairgrounds. And they've got a, a great gun selection. I was looking at a Six Hour that they had. Uh, and then they've got a good Yeti collection. They've got good kayaks. Um, I, I got a kayak from elsewhere, but they've got great ones. Uh, it's just a, it's a really neat store. I really like it. They've done a great job with it. I wish they had a gun range. They've got a um, archery range. I wish they had a gun range built in. You know, it, it, they're very similar to Shot Spot over in Carrollton, which I go to a lot. Uh, Shot Spot has a fantastic indoor gun range, including a hundred yard underground range for long barrel uh, guns. And I wish they did that, but in any event, the the it's by the Perry Fairgrounds, and it's just a just massive facility with, of course, the Sunny Purdue Go Fish Go Fish facility there. Now, when we come back, the Democrats jockeying for position as the vultures start circling Joe Biden. What are the Democrats going to do, and how are the Republicans going to respond? And what about a President Mike Pence? Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here. The third hour of the show. The phone number 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Remember, ERIC is E-R-I-C-K. Um, welcome to those of you across the state of Georgia tuning in and on Facebook Live. Right now, uh, breaking news happening now. Mac Thornberry, a uh, congressman from Texas, has announced he is uh, not going to stand for re-election. He is the sixth Texas Republican who is out. Uh, his district is Republican. Republicans will more likely than not keep it, but it just basically shows um, they hate the, um, they really, really do hate being in the minority. 
uh, the, and they're probably not going to get back the majority here. So, I mean, this is kind of a big signal that Republicans are riding off the House. If this many Republicans, I think we're up to 18 or 19 now Republicans leaving the House, uh, that's kind of a signal that they don't think the House is in play. They're not going to get it back. And so that just incentivizes even more departures among House Republicans. But there's a problem here, and this is an impeachment problem with the president. You've got four Republicans in the Senate leaving, and you've got 18 or 19 now Republicans in the House leaving. They're no longer scared of their voters. If they're not worried about being accountable to their voters, uh, they may want to pursue impeachment. Remember, many of these people blame the president. And because they blame the president for their having to leave their best job ever, they may be willing to do him in by pursuing impeachment. Um, you just you keep that in mind. It is a political accusation here that's happening. Meanwhile, Hispanic members of Congress are turning on uh, Julian Castro. They're trying to convince his brother, Joaquin Castro, to get Julian to drop out. He's polling at 1%. He's embarrassing himself, and he's attacking Joe Biden and Hispanic uh, Democrats want Joe Biden. Why do they want Joe Biden? Anybody have an idea as to why the Hispanic Democrats want Joe Biden? Because they're not progressive. I mean, by and large, they're 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 progressive per se, but they're not as far wackadoo left as most of them in Congress. And they're really, really, they don't want these far-left people. They don't want people like Ilhan Omar running the agenda. Speaking of, listen to poor little Ilhan Omar uh, and how she wants to wreck college. Yeah, and as, as someone who's part of the debt generation, I wanted to make sure that we were creating a proposal that would alleviate the kind of stress that people are, are dealing with. So what we're proposing is a simple cancellation of all debt, public and private. Um, so a simple cancellation of the $1.6 trillion. Uh, and the way that we will um, pay for it, you know, in the next 10 years is to um, add a small financial transaction um, to speculators in, on Wall Street. Uh, we believe that we had the opportunity to bail out Wall Street, and now Wall Street gets the opportunity to bail out the American people. Um, wait, wait, I wait, think it's really wait, 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 freeze. So, so, so we're going to add a fee to speculators on Wall Street. What is a speculator on Wall Street? If you actually read what they're proposing, it's, it's you and me. Anybody listening to this program who owns stock or a mutual fund or has a 401k or a Roth IRA or an IRA in general... You're a Wall Street speculator. She wants to tax you. Basically, they want to tax any transaction on Wall Street, and that's what they're going to do. What about Elizabeth Warren? She wanted this 2%, uh, two pennies for every dollar on millionaires and billionaires. No, Ilhan Omar, she wants to, if you invest in Wall Street through your 401k, your IRA, your, your individual plan, your mutual fund, what have you, she wants to tax you. Who are listening, um, who might think, why would you want to cancel all of the student debt, right? There might be some people who could pay it off. And I think for us, we look at it as being um, the, the most simple and uh, e you know, equitable thing to do because 
this debt isn't a rich person problem, right? Trump and his Trump's children are not benefiting um, from this cancellation. They don't carry student debt. Most of the people who carry student debt are the poor and the middle class. Uh, just to be clear, I, I'm I would no longer be classified as in the middle class. But my goodness, I'm paying off student loans for another 13 years from law school. I have been paying for a very long time on my, and I'm, I don't even practice law anymore and I'm paying off student loans. Um, why don't we ban student loans, make people pay for their own college instead of getting subsidized loans? I, I realize that's a radical plan here, but I would argue it's less radical than making higher education completely free. By the way, how do you make higher education completely free? There's not enough money for that. You know, some countries do make higher education completely free. Germany does. And I, I was involved in an exchange program with Germans for a while. Um, and the re- prevailing consensus among the Germans was don't go to the free schools. Uh, because the free schools, you got a bunch of people there who are going because their parents expect them to. And they're not really committed because they're not paying for it. I think maybe we should get rid of student loans by prohibiting people from getting loans to go to college. You got to pay for it. You know what that would do? That would drive down the cost of, of college. It would actually put a lot of colleges out of business. And that's not a bad thing. We do have a glut of academics out there. I mean, I would certainly step up. Well, I guess, would I fund my college? I would probably fund my alumni association. I'm still paying on college loans right now. My theory is why am I giving money to my college when I'm still paying for it? Once I stop paying for it, I'll, I'll certainly give some alumni dollars, I guess. But right now, I, I don't know about that. There are a lot of colleges and universities that would go under, but they are propped up right now by a subsidized student loan market that allows them to increase costs higher than inflation. And overall, I think that hurts. I think overall that hurts everybody. And because it hurts everybody, you've got a bunch of Democrats now saying, hey, let's let's forgive everybody's student loans. And, and what's that's going to do? It's an unfair process. What about the people who've already paid off their student loans? Should they get money back? Is this another form of reparations of something? Uh, people who've already paid off their student loans, let's, let's, let's punish the responsible people who paid off their student loans. Or do we give everybody money? And it's just government handout. Or do we means test it? Oh, you make too much money. You were too successful after getting out of college. We're going to punish you now. None of it makes sense. Uh, liberalism is the logic of an insane asylum. I really doubt they're going to ever have the votes to do this either. You, you know, this isn't popular among moderate Democrats in Congress. They kind of understand the problem. It's very much like slave reparations. Uh, slavery reparations are something that sounds really good to the progressive element out there. But to moderate Democrats, they know it spooks voters. Even black voters don't find it that popular. It's going to, it's going to hurt them. Now, I want to move on to a story. And I have hesitated whether or not to do it, but I'm looking at the clock. It's 14 after the hour. I got about six, seven minutes where I can dive into this without diving too down too far and depress everybody. If you have children listening right now, now may be a good time for you to step away for the next five minutes. I'm giving you a chance. You are warned. I don't want to talk about the story, but the story compels me to talk about it. Okay, three, two, one. 
The New York Times has a story over the weekend that is disturbing and demented. And were it animals, I think people would be severely outraged and take action. But it involves children. And in a society that thinks we can abort a child until the moment the child is born, or if you're the governor of Virginia, give birth to the child, let him be comfortable and then decide whether or not to kill him. It's not generating the outrage that it should. The New York Times has a story about the massive amount of child abuse that is being videotaped or photographed and shared on social media. It is a deeply demented and disturbing story. And it shows just a a willful failure of not really social media companies per se, but the government itself to figure out how to solve the problem. It is horrific. And a lot of people are blaming Facebook, Twitter, Google, and the like for these things, but it's really the people using their services, and they're doing the best they can to try to deal with it. Uh, Gabriel Dance from the New York Times has been working on this story. For months, my colleague Michael Keller and I have been investigating one of the darkest, most depraved topics I've ever encountered. Online child sexual abuse material, also known as child pornography, what we found is deeply troubling. Images and videos of children, yes, including infants and toddlers, being raped and tortured are traded and shared throughout the Internet, flooding social media, cloud storage, and even search engines. Last year, over 45 million images, 45 million, were reported to the Federal Clearinghouse that's responsible for collecting, reviewing, and distributing the illegal imagery. That's more than 120,000 images and videos every day. 85 every minute of every day for a year. Every single image or video is documentation of a crime and all are beyond the pale. I've read descriptions of abuse that were previously unfathomable to me. They've rocked me to my core. They raise fundamental questions about humanity. Just to be clear, I'm I'm reading Gabriel Dance's Twitter feed now. We've spoken with survivors whose lives are inextricably changed, not because of the abuse, but because of the ongoing re-victimization caused by imagery of the worst moments of their lives circulating online. These interviews were gutting. One woman we spoke to who was filmed being assaulted by her father when she was 12 talked about the devastation she faced every single day. She said, you're just trying to feel okay and not let something like this define your whole life, but the thing with the pictures is that's the thing that keeps this alive. The investigation raises many difficult issues. Foremost is encryption. The same technologies that offer anonymity and protection for whistleblowers, dissidents, and those who are being persecuted offers dark corners for criminals to hide. Facebook Messenger was responsible for 12 million of the 18 million reports to the National Center last year. Earlier this year, the company announced it was going to encrypt the service. Company spokespeople told us the encrypted Facebook Messenger would effectively blind them to the content of messages including those that are trading illegal imagery. Records obtained by the Times show that for every report of child sexual abuse imagery sent to law enforcement resulting from WhatsApp, Facebook's encrypted messenger service, there were more than 70 from Facebook Messenger. Encryption and the right to privacy is a human right. But things aren't so black and white when protecting privacy means millions and millions of reports of the worst abuse fathomable are soon to be cloaked in darkness. 
Our reporting showed that in these dark corners, pedophiles are sharing increasingly heinous imagery of torture and abuse with younger and younger victims. Like all things Internet, people are driven to extremes, and the extremes are terrifying. I was introduced to the term hurt core, and it's something I can't unlearn. It includes torturing, physical torture of children. And the federal response has been disappointing. Funding for law enforcement on the front lines has consistently been half of what's needed. It's meant some law enforcement have to make unbelievable decisions to focus on reports of abuse of infant and toddlers at the expense of others. They prioritize abuse of babies. The tech companies play a role. But everybody has to deal with it. If if these were pictures of animals being tortured and abused, what would the response be? What do you think the response would be? I'm guessing there would be national collective outrage and there would be demands for action. But these are kids and the action's not there. The outrage isn't there. There's a lot of blame shifting. Hey, let's blame the social media companies. Well, there's a lot more blame that needs to go around than that. You people are sinners. We all fall short of the glory of God. We all, like sheep, have grown astray, but there's real evil in the world as well. And we as a society, as we've embraced moral relativism, what is true, what is truth, we've minimized the impact of evil in the world. And there's real evil in the world. And there's something dark and disturbing creeping back into society as secularism rises and Christianity fades, and, and of course the, the, the sins within the church have, have let this happen, because as I point stuff out like this, there are those of you listening right now who can say, oh, but look at the church, look at the church, look at the church, look at the Boy Scouts, look, 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 at, look at all the, the, the problems there. You have no moral credibility. Yeah, the moral credibility is gone for the institutions that should deal with this. And so now it creeps in even more with a secular society at a greater pace, at more awfulness. Now it's not just priests molesting kids. It's actually tying down babies and torturing them, physically torturing them. Makes me want to gag just talking about it. There's something deeply demented happening in society. And, and you know, I, it, it, I tell my kids all the time, it's stuff like this that makes me think God's real. And people will say, how can you hear this horrible stuff and think that there's a real God, he wouldn't let this happen. And I was like, no, 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 I've, I've read the Bible. This stuff gets worse and worse until the last day. People are being turned over to their depravity. This is all Romans 1. People are being turned over to their depravity. Society itself is being turned over to its, its depravity. God has stepped back and let us have our way and we are seeing it. And I've got to tell you, I don't know what to do. I, I, I've got no idea what to do, but something needs to be done. 
this is not one of those issues. And, and you know, the, the left will say, well, see, you, you, you can't have, you, you got to support abortion rights. They'll, they'll find a way to turn this into a, into an abortion argument that, that by forcing these people, forcing people to have kids, look what happens to the kids. We don't want to bring kids into the world. We should be able to abort them. No, that's not the answer. Either killing kids is not the answer to, to, to stamping out the abuse of children. Something's got to give. Something has to give. Somebody's got to do something. The government needs to, all of us should stand up. And again, if this was an animal, there would be some action taken. That's, it's just, it's horrific. Yes, you can call in 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Them's the numbers. Feel free to call in. I, I'm, this shouldn't dwell on, shouldn't dwell on that New York Times story. We should, but we shouldn't. Um, it's just, it's, it's horrific. Um, it is horrific. I, let, let's let's move on to other things. I, I you know, so I, I've I've told the story several times. I'm I'm found myself in seminary. I've taken the semester off to to launch this show. And um, and uh, hang on, um, yeah 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 yeah. After six thirty p.m. Closer. To, sorry, uh, I'm trying to I'm trying to deal with stuff that must be done. <laughs> um, so I, I've mentioned I, I wound up in seminary largely because I kept getting asked. I, I, I do talk about culture and faith. I, I am an evangelical Christian, although I don't know if I want to keep using the word evangelical. It's becoming tainted by politics. Uh, but you know what I mean. I, I'm, I'm in a PCA church, grew up Southern Baptist, uh, take my faith seriously, have over time realized that um, I need to conform my politics to my faith instead of conforming my faith to my politics. And... E- I, I talk about it, and in so talking about it, I have, I don't know, I, I the scales have fallen off my eyes, so to speak. It hadn't really been a road to Damascus moment, but what I have learned more and more, what I've seen more and more, what I've witnessed more and more, is that we really do have a failure of grace in politics these days. And that's actually going to be something. There's an impeachment angle. Yes, there is. There's an impeachment angle here. It, it, it trips up. The Democrats, I think. I, I, I think it does trip up the Democrats. I, I want to play you this audio from Congressman Ted Lieu. No, people uh, sit on boards and uh, they get monetary payments. And what the evidence actually shows is that Ukrainians looked into this, terminated the investigation, found nothing there. So this is just made up, which also is very troubling because you have the American president essentially asking the Ukrainians to manufacture dirt on a political opponent because there really was no evidence of corruption. Except there was. There was evidence of corruption of Hunter Biden getting $50,000 a month to sit on the board of a company he had no experience on. And the Democrats' willful refusal to accept it or believe it. And their lack of grace to understand that there is another side to this is problematic. But there's something more to it as well. And I'm seeing this among people who are on the right, but they really hate the president. And that's going to undermine the impeachment. And I'll explain what I'm talking about when we come back. I, we don't have enough time here, but I just stick around. You need to hear this. I'm just here for the music. <laughs> Welcome back. It's Eric Erickson. The full number, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Across the state of Georgia and around the nation on Facebook Live right now. Uh, don't forget... 
You can text the word show to 33777. You'll get the daily podcast of the show. You'll get the daily email from the show. You, you'll get everything other than the recipes. That's separate. You got to text recipe instead of show to 33777 for that. Um, okay. Let, let me let me read you a quote. It actually just came in th- from email. Um, completely unrelated to what I was going to talk about, but directly related. Daniel Patrick Moynihan, in a commencement address in 1969 to Notre Dame, Notre Dame, Notre Dame. By the way, did y'all hear Pete Buttigieg, who is the mayor of South Bend, after the Notre Dame UGA game, says that he he feels guilty for for liking football, that it's it's basically bad to like football. <sighs> okay, what is it that government cannot provide? It cannot provide values to persons who have none or who have lost those they had. It cannot provide a meaning to life. It cannot provide inner peace. It can provide outlets to moral energies, but it cannot create those energies. In particular, government cannot cope with the crisis and values that is sweeping the Western world. We are where we are as a nation, I think, to some degree because of a crisis of values in this country and in a divergent path in the culture war in this country. There are those who want to be left alone. There are those who want to impose their values on others. The people who want to impose their values on others are, are, desi- are divided between those who believe the nation really was founded as a Christian nation and we should all behave accordingly and those who believe we are a secular atheist society uh, and religion is outmoded and want to impose those values as well. It just, it's... It's deeply problematic, I think. And I'm seeing this in a lot of the conversations. And again, social media really isn't uh, that indicative of the nation as a whole. But in the bubble and echo chamber that the media and politicians feed off of, I think it actually is indicative of where things are right now. And what we see is this real intolerance on both sides towards anyone deviating from tribe. Any Republican who suggests, let's wait and see, is immediately excoriated as a heretic, burn him at the stake. How dare you not defend the President of the United States? You know, so on my other radio show last week, there was an interesting um, situation where I said, I don't think what the President has done is impeachable. I I do not, I read the transcript, I read the whistleblower complaint. I think there's a logical explanation for the president locking transcripts away where people can't leak them. I think there's a logical explanation for the president uh, saying what he said. I absolutely think that the president did nothing wrong in in the transcript. And I think the media badly is overplaying their hand in how they characterize the transcript. It's not good. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying it's good. Um, and, and people are also hearing if you say it's not bad, it means no, no. I, I just think it's not impeachable. It's not good, but it's not impeachable. But then I said something else. I said, if it is shown that the president did withhold that money to Ukraine to pressure Ukrainians into investigating Joe Biden to benefit the president's reelection, there are a lot of ifs in there. If he withheld the money, if it was to benefit his reelection, then that's impeachable because it would undermine the separation of powers. 
If it undermines the separation of powers, it goes after the power of the purse. The power of the purse is fundamentally by the founders put into the Constitution in Article 1 to give the legislature supremacy. You know, we don't have three equal, co-equal branches of government. The legislature is supposed to be the most powerful. It has the power of the purse. If anything, the, the, the articles of the Constitution are put in order of prominence, not, not three equal branches, but the first article gives the most prominence, the second article the second, the third the least, and yet the courts have tried to make themselves the most powerful, but I digress. If, if the president tried to usurp the power of the purse for political gain, that is impeachable. That is impeachable under the historic standards of the Constitution. That is impeachable under the standards of the founders. That is impeachable under the standards of the Federalist Papers. That is a high crime and mis- or misdemeanor under the Constitution for the presidency to deviate and break through the firewall of the First Amendment, uh, first article of the Constitution and seize the power of the purse for himself to have right and discretion to withhold funds without appropriate lawful authority by Congress. That makes the president a king, not a president. Not only that, it makes the president a king beyond the power of the king of Great Britain from whom we rebelled. That would be impeachable, but there is no evidence of that. There is no evidence of that. And yet I was excoriated by supporters of the president last week for saying that, for saying there's no evidence of this, but if this happened, that would be where I would support impeachment. How dare you? How, how dare you do this? What, what have I done? I've said the, what the president did is an impeachable but here's something that is not proven. If it was proven, it would be impeachable. Oh, no, 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 You can't do that. And we have something else on the left. On the left, we have the situation, and particularly among people who are Republicans, but they don't like the president. If you do not right now support impeachment of the president, you're a hack. If you do not right now support the president, you're a terrible person, betraying the country and the Constitution. There's no gray area there. You either must agree with Adam Schiff right now or else. Again, here's Hugh Hewitt from Meet the Press this weekend. He makes a very good point. Even if you and I don't always see the world eye to eye, but he makes a good point on this. The most important thing that was said this morning thus far is Adam Schiff came on Mm -hmm. and he went full Alice in Wonderland, Queen of Hearts. Verdict first, trial later. I believe he destroyed his credibility this morning on this show as a fair arbiter of this process. The key other thing about is there enough time is there a middle that middle is tired of investigating president trump it has gone on for two years and the most interesting part of the nancy pelosi decision to go for a fast impeachment is the implicit but very real concession that the Mueller report had no impeachable offense no obstruction no collusion it's gone they have erased it from the record so adam shift is biased and nancy pelosi has admitted that Mueller exonerated trump yep And we have a a personal investment here from people who hate the president that if you don't go along with Adam Schiff in this, you're bad. But at the same, they said the same thing about the Mueller report. If you didn't agree with the conclusions of the Mueller report, you were bad. And then the Mueller report came out and said there was no collusion. Oh, but, 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 but. And there's no grace. What's happening here is we're shaping up to a position where there is no grace. And in having no grace, we're not allowing people to change their position. Because they know if they do change their position, they're going to be excoriated. Look at what happened with Mitt Romney. Mitt Romney came out and said 
he was concerned with the allegations. He didn't support impeaching the president, but he was concerned. And the right tore into Mitt Romney. Trump supporters tore into Mitt Romney. He was disloyal. But on the left, they tore into Mitt Romney for not saying impeachment. If not this, what? What will it take, Mitt Romney? You should be impeaching him now. You should have been impeaching him yesterday. You're just a terrible person. You're such a partisan hack, Mitt Romney. You're all in the presidency. You're humping Donald Trump's leg. There's no win. Why should Mitt Romney come to the conclusion that there should be impeachment when he's going to be attacked? Why should Mitt Romney come to the conclusion that there definitively was no wrong when he's going to be attacked? And it's one thing to be attacked by the other side. It's the side you're coming to welcomes you with the open arms of cannibals. Why should you want to go in their position when they're going to attack you? You know, I was one of the 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 never Trumpers in 2016. I, I said I'd support the president in 2020. In 2016, I said character counts. Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump both have terrible character. I'm just not electing either one of them. I'm having nothing to do with either one of them. 100 million Americans agreed. And so I've said, you know, in 2020, as much as I think character counts, 120 million Americans decided otherwise, I'll, I'll participate and pick between the two parties. And between the two parties, I'll go with Trump. Still doesn't mean I think he's got great character. I think he's got ter- terrible character, but most Americans have clearly decided character doesn't count anymore. And between the candidates on their policies, I'll go with Trump. But I was excoriated by Trump supporters for saying I would support the president in 2020. We didn't need you in 2016. We don't need you now. You know, one of the few people who wasn't, who didn't assure you, it was the president. He called several times. The president's called me now. Called and thanked me for that. But there's no grace in politics anymore. I mean, to be greeted with the open arms of cannibals by moving to one side makes you not want to move to that side. When, when the, the, the never Trumpers out there now the diehard will never support the president, would rather a communist socialist than President Trump, even though they claim to be Republicans. When their position is you either come out for impeachment now or to heck with you forever. They really make it hard for Republicans to want to change their mind. If you're going to make people pay a price to come to your side, they're not going to want to come to your side. You know, what did Jesus say to the apostles, the Great Commission? When you go out, preach, teach, and baptize in my name, making disciples of all the world. He didn't say go out and and burn the sinners at the stake. He said, welcome them in, show them grace. Now, certainly with him, there's repentance. With, with, With God, there's repentance. You must repent. You must say, I'm sorry for the things I did. But when it's between us, you know, you you should just welcome people in. They're coming to you as a tacit acknowledgement that they're repudiating their side. When people come to the president's side who have been skeptical of the president to want to put them at the back of the line, to punish them, to, to excoriate them for not having gotten there soon enough, that's not the way you play the game of politics when you want to build a coalition. And both sides right now need to build coalitions. And it's as if both sides have forgotten how the game is played. It's as if both sides really have embraced the idea of new rules. 
that somehow the old rules don't apply. And I disagree with that. I think the old rules still apply. In fact, I think Donald Trump won under the old rules. And, and people are so discombobulated by him winning, they can't see that the old rules still apply. Both candidates had very high name recognition, and the candidate who had more favorability won. That's the oldest rule in politics. Hillary Clinton was despised by most Americans. She had outstanding name ID, and it was almost all negative. Donald Trump was despised by a great many Americans, but not nearly as many as Hillary Clinton. And so he won. You fast forward to 2020, there's a problem for the president. Now, more Americans now despise him. And if it's Joe Biden... Biden could still win because more Americans have a favorable impression of Biden, except the Trump campaign. They're going to tear him down. They're going to spend a lot of time tearing him down. The one thing they're going to have a hard time doing, though, is if they continue to pursue the wacky conspiracy theories to tear him down, as opposed to Joe Biden allowed his children to profit from his time in office. And it would be deeply corrupting. Now, that's a hard argument for Trump and family to make because of of Ivanka and, and Eric and Donald Jr., but the Democrats have been making that case against Trump. Trump could not only make it against Biden, Trump could show something the left can't show against Donald Trump. Trump could show something the left can't show against him, and that is there is no evidence that Eric, Eric Trump and, and Donald Trump Jr. or Ivanka have been going around picking up contracts with third world governments and businesses that do business with the United States. That's all on Joe Biden. The conspiracy theory train isn't going to work. But pointing that out, I think, well, here's Chris Wallace from this weekend about the conspiracy theories. Oh, I think it's changed quite a lot, Sandra. Uh, and the spinning that's been done by the president's defenders over the last 24 hours since this very damaging whistleblower complaint came out, uh, the spinning is not surprising, but it is uh, astonishing and I think deeply misleading. Uh, let's look at what the whistleblower says. The whistleblower says that there was a troubling call in which the president asked uh, the Ukrainian president uh, to investigate and to look at the allegation of, of misdoing by uh, Vice President Biden and by his son. We now have a rough transcript of that phone call and that's exactly what happened? The whistleblower, this is back in August, said that for a very unknown and surprising reason that the administration had held up aid to Ukraine. That was not widely known at the time, but in fact it turns out that it was the case. Yeah. They're going to have to do a better story than they've done. They're not going to be able to make this about Joe Biden protecting his son because we know that's not true. It turns out the investigation was over. Uh, it turns out that a lot of John Solomon's reporting is wrong. And a lot of conservatives, I've gotten emails from people berating me for for not sticking up for John Solomon's coverage, but the more we learn, the more we learn he got a lot wrong. But people are showing no grace. I, I mean, my goodness, um, I have been defending the president on this impeachment stuff now. I went on CNN on, on Friday night and defended the president. On CNN, I defended the president. And yet the president's defenders want to attack anyone who defends him if they don't defend him enough. And the same is true on the other side. The left wants to attack anyone who questions the president but refuses to come to their position immediately. You're going to have a lot of people in the middle who refuse to go in either direction. 
And that's going to drag this out and hurt the president, but it's also going to drag it out and hurt the impeachment case. The Democrats recognize they've got to expeditiously deal with impeachment. If they don't expeditiously deal with impeachment, guess what's going to happen? People are going to grow weary of it, and they're going to start having sympathy for the president. CNBC actually has this article that if you drag out impeachment for too long, people will develop sympathy for the president. You have to deal with it expeditiously, except the Democrats can't deal with it expeditiously. they got to grant due process. They've actually got to have hearings. They've got to give the Republicans a way to make a case. they got to do that. And if it goes to the Senate, it takes even longer. Now, Mitch McConnell's already said that they will take up impeachment. If it comes to the Senate, he believes the rules of the Senate require that they take up impeachment. But the Democrats in the 1990s offered a motion to reject impeachment immediately upon arrival at the Senate. And it failed. And they created a precedent Mitch McConnell could use to reject impeachment immediately upon arrival at the Senate. In other words, to find the president not guilty based on what the House found without having a trial. And they could do that, too. And if the Democrats want this to go forward, they need to think real carefully about how they're treating people like Mitt Romney and Ben Sass and Susan Collins and Richard Burr and Johnny Isaacson and Pat Roberts and uh, Mike Enzi and the like. Republicans need to think about the same thing. Uh, it could go a long way in helping you in your position, whatever your position is, if you offer grace to the wayward people who haven't made up their minds. Neither side wants to do that. It's going to hurt them both. That's right. How many of you have done this today? I, I can see in real time. Oh, yeah, we got a few. Recipe to 33777. I, I Honestly, I haven't decided what I'm sending out. So I set several of them, and then I have to decide what I'm going to send out. I sent out corn fritters on Thursday last week. And I had to resend it because I forgot an ingredient. I may have to do a dessert. Maybe something healthy. I don't know. We'll see. Text recipe to 33777, and on Wednesday or Thursday, I'll email you a, a, a recipe of something. I'm a big believer in, in breaking bread, transcends the partisan divide these days. Now, there is news. It is happening right now. Uh, last week, there was an allegation at the school where Karen Pence works in Virginia that a sixth-grade uh, African-American child says that uh, older boy, white boys in the school held her down and cut off her braids and called her hair nappy. It became a huge story in large part because this is the school where Karen, Print, Karen Pence teaches. You know, the, I mean, the left has been out to get Karen Pence for doing this. This is a very much like my kids. My kids go to a classical Christian school in Macon. And it's it's very ordered. It does not use Common Core, which is fantastic. It uses real math. The kids have to learn Latin. Uh, they've got to argue. They've got to do dissertations, things like that. Very, very, very detailed and rigorous academic training. Um, and it's Christian. And to get into the school, your parents have to have an interview based on their faith testimony. If your kid transfers in from middle school, they've got to be active in a youth program at church. And very much like this school that Karen Pence does. Well, the story came out and the media, of course, pounced on it because they hate the very idea that this school exists. Remember, there was some speculation that maybe Karen Pence shouldn't get protection to go work at a school that discriminates against transgender and gay people. How does it discriminate? Well, it's a Christian school, so the people who work there have to be in a biblical relationship. That means straight marriage, real marriage. Turns out the story's not true. The school is now reporting the kid made it up. That's right, made it up. 
we're seeing these, aren't, aren't we? We saw the former NFL player who who spray painted MAGA and whatnot in his store to try to get some sympathy. Turns out it wasn't real. We're seeing this uh, around the country now. A lot, a lot of hate crimes. They're all made up by people claiming that it's Trump supporters. They get big media attention, lots of sympathy, and they've made it up. You should be real skeptical of these things now. It seems like we've had more fake hate crimes than real hate crimes in the last couple of years, particularly in the age of Trump. We've had this more fake crimes than real crimes. Everybody making these sorts of things up. And the media seizes on all of them as if they're real. The media seizes on all of them as if they're horrible tragedies that, that Trump is inspiring this stuff. If anything, what Donald Trump is doing, he's inspiring a bunch of people to make fake, fake hate crimes. And the media plays up these stories. And the problem is that the real stories get downplayed or diminished. Like, for example, the abuse in Jewish communities in New York City is on the rise. The amount of anti-Semitic crimes in New York City is escalating. The abuse up there is escalating, and people don't pay attention to that stuff. It's a shame.